0: Today's read will be an excerpt from the famous 4th of July speech made by Frederick Douglass in 1852 and I'm going to ask for patience with um, some of my um, pronunciations because the language as it was written back then was a bit different from what I'm used to reading um, in contemporary times. And I just ask for patience and uh, an ear to really hear the profoundness of this speech, and um, the fact that it actually still applies very much to what's going on today. So here we go, fellow citizens. Above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains heavy and grievous yesterday are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning. And may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason, most scandalous and shocking, and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject, then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view, standing there, identified with the American bondman making his wrongs mine. I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on this 4th of July. Whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce, with all the emphasis I can command, everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. I will not equivocate, I will not excuse. I will use the severest language I can command and yet not one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice or who is not at heart a slaveholder shall not confess to be right and just. But I fancy I hear some of some one of my audience say it is just in this circumstance that you and your brother abolitionists fail to make a favorable impression on the public mind. Would you argue more and denounce less? Would you persuade more and rebuke less? Your cause would be much more likely to succeed. But I submit where all is plain, there is nothing to be argued. What point in the anti-slavery creed would you have me argue? On what branch of the subject do the people of this country need light? must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man? That point is conceded already. Nobody doubts it. The slaveholders themselves acknowledge it in the, enact, in the enactment, enactment of laws for their government. They acknowledge it when they punish disobedience on the part of the slave. There are 72 crimes in the state of Virginia, which, if committed by a black man, no matter how ignorant he be, subject him to the punishment of death, while only two of the same crimes will subject a white man to the like punishment. What is this? But the acknowledgement that the slave is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being. The manhood of the slave is conceded. It is admitted in the fact that Southern statute books are covered with enactments forbidding, under severe fines and penalties, the teaching of the slave to read or to write. When you can point to any such laws in reference to the beasts of the field, then I, I may consent to argue the manhood of the slave. When the dogs in your streets... When the fowls of the air, when the cattle on your hills, when the fish of the sea and the reptiles that crawl shall be unable to distinguish the slave from a brute, then will I argue with you that the slave is a man. For the present, it is enough to affirm the equal manhood of the Negro race. Is it not astonishing that while we are plowing, planting, and reaping, using all kinds of mechanical tools erecting houses, constructing bridges, building ships, working in metals of brass, iron, copper, silver, and gold, that while we are reading, writing, and ciphering, acting as clerks, merchants, and secretaries, having among us lawyers, doctors, ministers, poets, authors, editors, orators, and teachers, that while we are engaged in all manner of enterprises common to other men, digging gold in California, capturing the whale in the Pacific, feeding sheep and cattle on the hillside, living, moving, acting, thinking, planning, living in families as husbands, wives, and children, and above all, confessing and worshiping the Christian's God, and looking hopefully for life and immortality beyond the grave. We are called upon to prove that we are men Would you have me argue that man is entitled to liberty, that he is the rightful owner of his body? You have already declared it. Must I argue the wrongfulness of slavery? Is that a question for Republicans? Is it to be settled by the rules of logic and argumentation as a matter beset with great difficulty, involving a doubtful application of the principle of justice, hard to be understood? How should I look today? In the presence of Americans, dividing and subdividing a discourse to show that men have a natural right to freedom. Speaking of it relatively and positively, negatively and affirmatively, to do so would be to make myself ridiculous and to offer an insult to your understanding. There is not a man beneath the canopy of heaven that does not know that slavery is wrong for him. What am I to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty, to work them without wages, to keep them ignorant of their relations to their fellow men, to beat them with sticks, to flay their flesh with the lash, to load their limbs with irons, to hunt them with dogs, to sell them at auction, to sunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their master's Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I will not. I have better employments for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. What then remains to be argued? Is it that slavery is not divine? That God did not establish it? That our doctors of divinity are mistaken? There is blasphemy in the thought. That which is inhuman cannot be divine. Who can reason on such a proposition? They that can may, I cannot. The time for such argument is past. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could I reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The the conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer... A day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity, Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud deception, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. Travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. Take the American slave trade which, we are told by the papers, is especially prosperous just now. Ex-Senator Benton tells us that the price of men was never higher than now. He mentions the fact to show that slavery is in no danger. This trade is one of the, the peculiarities of American institutions. It is carried on in all the large towns and cities in one half of this confederacy, and millions are pocketed every year by dealers in this horrid traffic. In several states, this trade is a chief source of wealth. It is called, in contradistinction to the foreign slave trade, the internal slave trade. It is probably called so too in order to divert from it the horror with which the foreign slave trade is is contemplated. That trade has long since been denounced by this government as piracy. It has been denounced with burning words from the high places of the nation as an execrable traffic to arrested to put an end to it, this nation keeps the squadron at immense cost on the coast of Africa. Everywhere in this country it is safe to speak of this foreign slave trade as a most inhuman traffic, opposed alike to the laws of God and of man. The duty to extirpate and destroy it is admitted even by our doctors of divinity. In order to put an end to it, Some of these last have consented that their colored brethren, nominally free, should leave this country and establish themselves on the western coast of Africa. It is, however, a notable fact that while so much execration is poured out by Americans upon those engaged in the foreign slave trade, the men engaged in the slave trade between the states without condemnation and their business is deemed honorable. Behold the practical operation of this internal slave trade, the American slave trade sustained by American politics and American religion. Here you will see men and women reared like swine for the market. You know what it is? You know what is a swine drover? I will show you a man drover. They inhabit, they inhabit all our southern states. They perambulate the country and crowd the highways of the nation with droves of, droves of human stock. You will see one of these human flesh jobbers, armed with a pistol, whipped and Bowie knife, driving a company of a hundred men, women, and children from the Potomac to the slave market at New Orleans. These wretched people are to be sold singly or in lots to suit purchasers. They are food for the cotton field and the deadly sugar mill. Mark the sad procession as it moves wearily along and the inhuman wretch who drives them. Hear his savage yells and his blood-chilling oaths as he hurries on his affrighted captives. There, see the old man with locks thinned and gray. Cast one glance, if you please, upon that young mother whose shoulders are bare to the scorching sun, her briny tears falling on the brow of the babe in her arms. See, too, that girl of thirteen weeping yes, weeping, as she thinks of the mother from whom she has been torn. The drove moves tardily. Heat and sorrow have nearly consumed their strength. Suddenly you hear a quick snap like the discharge of a rifle. The fetters clank and the chain rattles simultaneously. Your ears are saluted with a scream that seems to have torn its way to the center of your soul. The crack you heard was the sound of the slave whip. The scream you heard was from the woman you saw with the babe. Her speed had faltered under the weight of her child and her chains. That gash on her shoulder tells her to move on. Follow the drove to New Orleans. Attend the auction. See men examined like horses. See the forms of women rudely and brutally exposed to the shocking gaze of American slave buyers. See this drove, sold and separated forever, and never forget the deep, sad sobs that arose from that scattered multitude. Tell me, citizens, where? Under the sun, you can witness a spectacle more fiendish and shocking. Yet, this is but a glance at the American slave trade as it exists at this moment in the ruling part of the United States. I was born amid such sights and scenes. To me, the American slave trade is a terrible reality. When a child, my soul was often pierced with a sense of its horrors. I lived on Philpot Street, Fells Point, Baltimore and have watched from the wharves the slave ships in the basin anchored from the shore with their cargoes of human flesh waiting for favorable winds to waft them down the chesapeake there was at that time a grand slave mart kept at the head of pratt street by austin wald his agents were sent into every town and county in maryland announcing their arrival through the papers, and on flaming handbills, headed cash for Negroes. These men were generally well-dressed men, and very captivating in their manners, ever ready to drink, to treat, and to gamble. The fate of many a slave has depended upon the turn of a single card, and many a child has been snatched from the arms of its mother by bargains arranged in a state of brutal Drunkenness. The fleshmongers gather up their victims by dozens and drive them chained to the general depot at Baltimore. When a sufficient number have been collected here, a ship is chartered for the purpose of conveying the forlorn crew to Mobile or to New Orleans. From the slave prison to the ship, they are usually driven in the darkness of night. For since the anti-slavery agitation. "'a certain caution is observed. "'In the deep, still darkness of midnight, "'I have been often aroused by the dead, heavy footsteps "'and the piteous cries of the chained gangs "'that passed our door. "'The anguish of my boyish heart was intense, "'and I was often consoled "'when speaking to my mistress in the morning "'to hear her say that the custom was very wicked.' that she hated to hear the rattle of the chains and the heartrending cries. I was glad to find one who sympathized with me in my horror. Fellow citizens, this murderous traffic is today an active operation in this boasted republic. In the solitude of my spirit, I see clouds of dust raised on the highways of the south. I see the bleeding footsteps. I hear the doleful wail of fettered humanity on the way to the slave markets where the victims are to be sold like horses, like sheep and swine, knocked off to the highest bidder. There I see the tenderest ties ruthlessly broken to gratify the lust, caprice and rapacity of the buyers and sellers of men. My soul sickens at the sight. Is this the land your fathers loved? The freedom which they toiled to win? Is this the earth whereon they moved? Are these the graves they slumber in? But a still more inhumane, disgraceful, and scandalous state of things remains to be presented. By an act of the American Congress, not yet two years old, slavery has been nationalized in its most horrible and revolting form. By that act, Mason and Dixon's line has been obliterated. New York has become as Virginia, and the power to hold, hunt, and sell men, women, and children as slaves remains no longer a mere state institution, but is now an institution of the whole United States. The power is coextensive with the Star-Spangled Banner and American Christianity. Where these go may also go the merciless slave hunter. Where these are, man is not sacred. He is a bird for the sportsman's gun. By that most foul and fiendish of all human decrees, the liberty and person of every man are put in peril. Your broad Republican domain is hunting ground for men, not for thieves and robbers, enemies of society, merely but for men guilty of no crime. Your lawmakers have commanded all good citizens to engage in this hellish sport. Your president, your secretary of state, our lords, nobles, and ecclesiastics, enforce as a duty you owe to your free and glorious country and to your God that you do this accursed thing. Not fewer than 40 Americans have within the past two years been hunted Down and without a moment's warning hurried away in chains and consigned to slavery and excruciating torture some of these have had wives and children dependent on them for bread but of this no account was made the right of the hunter to his prey stands superior to the right of marriage and to all rights in this republic the rights of God included for black men There are neither law, justice, humanity, not religion. The fugitive slave law makes mercy to them a crime and bribes the judge who tries them. An American judge gets $10 for every victim he consigns to slavery and five when he fails to do so. The oath of any two villains is sufficient. Under this hell-black enactment, to send the most pious and exemplary black man into the remorseless jaws of slavery. His own testimony is nothing. He can bring no witnesses for himself. The minister of American justice is bound by the law to hear but one side, and that side is the side of the oppressor. Let this damning fact be perpetually told. Let it be thundered around the world that in tyrant killing, king-hating, people-loving, democratic Christian America, the seats of justice are filled with judges who hold their offices under an open and palpable bribe and are are bound in deciding in the case of a man's liberty. Hear only his accusers. In glaring violation of justice, in shameless disregard of the forms of administering law in cunning arrangement to entrap his defenseless and in diabolical intent, this fugitive slave law stands alone in the annals of tyrannical, tyrannical legislation. I doubt if there be another nation on the globe having the brass and the baseness to put such a law on the statute book. If any man in this assembly thinks differently from me in this matter and feels able to disprove my statements, I will gladly confront him at any suitable time and place he may select. I take this law to be one of the grossest infringements of Christian liberty, and if the churches and ministers of our country were not stupidly blind or most wickedly indifferent, they too would so regard it. At the very moment that they are thanking God for the enjoyment of civil and religious liberty and for the right to worship God according to the dictates of their own consciences, they are utterly silent in respect to a law which robs religion of its chief significance and makes it utterly worthless to a world lying in wickedness. Did this law concern the mint, anise, and cumin, Abridge the right to sing psalms, to partake of the sacrament, or to engage in any of the ceremonies of religion, it would be smitten by the thunder of a thousand pulpits. A general shout would go up from the church, demanding repeal, repeal, instant repeal, and it would go hard with that politician who presumed to solicit the votes of the people without inscribing this motto on this banner. Further, if this demand were not complied with Another Scotland would be added to the history of religious liberty, and the stern old covenanters would be thrown into the shade. A John Knox would be seen at every church door and heard from every pulpit, and Fillmore would have no more quarter than was shown by Knox to the beautiful but treacherous Queen Mary of Scotland. The fact that the church of our country, with fractional exceptions, does not esteem the fugitive slave law as a declaration of war against religious liberty, implies that the church regards religion simply as a form of worship, an empty ceremony, and not a vital principle requiring active benevolence, justice, love, and goodwill towards man. It esteems sacrifice above mercy, psalm singing above right doing, solemn meetings above practical righteousness, a worship that can be conducted by persons who refuse to give shelter to the houseless, to give bread to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and who enjoin obedience to a law forbidding these acts of mercy is a curse, not a blessing to mankind. The Bible addresses all such persons as scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites who pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have omitted the way, omitted weighty weightier matters of the law judgment mercy and faith but the church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slave it actually takes sides with the oppressors it has made itself the bulwark of american slavery and the shield of american slave hunters Many of its most eloquent divines who stand as the very lights of the church have shamelessly given the sanction of religion and the Bible to the whole slave system. They have taught that man may properly be a slave, that the relation of master and slave is ordained of God, that to send back an escaped bondman to his master is clearly the duty of all the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this horrible blasphemy is psalmed off upon the world for Christianity. For my part, I would say welcome infidelity, welcome atheism, welcome anything in preference to this gospel as preached by those divines. They convert the very name of religion into an engine of tyranny and barbarous cruelty and serve to confirm more infidels in this age than all the infidel writings of Thomas Paine, Voltaire, and Bolingsbrook put together have done. These ministers make religion a cold and flinty-hearted thing, having neither principles of right action nor bowels of compassion. They strip the love of God of its beauty and leave the throng of religion a huge, horrible, repulsive form. It is a religion for oppressors, tyrants, man-stealers, and thugs. It is not that pure and undefiled undefiled religion which is from above and which is first pure then peaceable easy to be entreated full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy but a religion which favors the rich against the poor which exalts the proud above the humble which divides mankind into two classes tyrants and slaves which says to the man in chains stay there and to the oppressor oppress on it is a religion which may be professed and enjoyed by all the robbers and enslavers of mankind. It makes God a respecter of persons, denies his fatherhood of the race, and trembles in the dust the great truth of the brotherhood of man. All this we affirm to be true of the popular church and the popular worship of our land and nation. A religion a church and a worship worship which, on the authority of inspired wisdom, we pronounce to be an abomination in the sight of God. In the language of Isaiah, the American church might well be addressed. Bring no more vain ablations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even in the solemn meeting." Your new moons and your appointed feasts by my soul hateth. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them, and when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge for the fatherless. Plead for the widow the American church is guilty when viewed in connection with what it is doing to uphold slavery. But it is superlatively guilty when viewed in connection with its ability to abolish slavery. The sin of which it is guilty is one of omission as well of commission. Albert Barnes but uttered what the common sense of every man at all observant, uh, at all observant of the actual state of the case will receive as truth when he declared that There is no power out of the church that could sustain slavery an hour if it were not sustained in it. Let the religious press, the pulpit, the Sunday school, the conference meeting, the great ecclesiastical ecclesiastical missionary, Bible and tract associations of the land array their immense powers against slavery and slaveholding and the whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds and that they do not do this involves them in the most awful responsibility of which the mind can conceive in prosecuting the anti-slavery enterprise we have been asked to spare the church to spare the ministry but how we ask could such a thing be done we are met on the threshold of our efforts for the redemption of the slave by the church and ministry of the country in battle arrayed against us and we are compelled to fight or flee From what quarter, I beg to know, has proceeded a fire so deadly upon our ranks? During the last two years, as from the northern pulpit, as the champions of oppressors, the chosen men of American theology have appeared, men honored for their so-called piety and their real learning the Lords of Buffalo, the Springs of New York, the Lathrops of Auburn, the Coxes and Spencers of Brooklyn, the Gannets and Sharps of Boston, the Deweys of Washington, and other great religious lights of the land have, in utter denial of the authority of him by whom they professed to be called to the ministry, deliberately taught us, against the example of the Hebrews and against, against the remonstrance of the apostles they teach that we ought to obey man's law before the law of god my spirit wearies of such blasphemy and how such men can be supported as the standing types and representatives of jesus christ is a mystery which i leave others to penetrate in speaking of the American Church, however, let it be distinctly understood that I mean the great mass of the religious organizations of our land. There are exceptions, and I thank God that there are. Noblemen may be found scattered all over these northern states, of whom Henry Ward Beecher of Brooklyn, Samuel J. May of Syracuse, and my esteemed friend Reverend R. R. Raymond on the platform are shining examples. And let me say further that upon these men lies the duty to inspire our ranks with high religious faith and zeal and to cheer us on in the great mission of the slave's redemption from his chains. One is struck with the difference between the attitude of the American church towards the anti-slavery movement and that occupied by the churches in England towards a similar movement in that country. There, the church, true to its mission of ameliorating, elevating, and improving the condition of mankind, came forward promptly, bound up the wounds of the West Indian slave, and restored him to his liberty. There, the question of emancipation was a high religious question. It was demanded in the name of humanity, and according to the law of the living God, the Sharps, the Clarksons, the Wilberforces, the Buxtons, and Burchells, and the Nibs were alike famous for their piety and for their philanthropy. The anti slavery movement there was not an anti church movement, for the reason that the church took its full share in prosecuting that movement, and the anti slavery movement in this country will cease to be an anti church movement. When the church of this country shall assume a favorable instead of a hostile position towards that movement, Americans, Your Republican politics, not less than your Republican religion, are flagrantly inconsistent. You boast of your love of liberty, your superior civilization, and your pure Christianity, while the whole political power of the nation, as embodied in the the two great political parties, is solemnly pledged to support and perpetuate the enslavement of three millions of your countrymen. You hurl your anathemas at the crowned headed tyrants of Russia and Austria and pride yourselves on your democratic institutions while you yourselves consent to be the mere tools and bodyguards of the tyrants of Virginia and Carolina. You invite your shores fugitives of oppression from abroad, honor them with banquets, greet them with ovations, cheer them toast them salute them protect them and pour out your money to them like water but the fugitives from your own land you advertise hunt arrest shoot and kill you glory in your refinement and your universal education yet you maintain a system as barbarous and dreadful as ever stain the character of a nation a system begun in avarice supported in pride and perpetuated in cruelty You you shed tears over fallen Hungary and make the sad story of her wrongs the theme of your poets, statesmen, and orators, till your gallant sons are ready to fly fly to arms to vindicate her cause against her oppressors. But in regard to the ten thousand wrongs of the American slave, you would enforce the strictest silence and would hail him as an enemy of the nation who dares to make those wrongs the subject of public discourse." You are all on fire at the mention of liberty for France or for Ireland, but are as cold as an iceberg at the thought of liberty for the enslaved of America. You discourse eloquently on the dignity of labor, yet you sustain a system which, in its very essence, casts a stigma upon labor. You can bear your bosom to the storm of British artillery to throw off a Thirpenny tax on tea, and yet wring the last hard-earned farthing from the grasp of the black laborers of your country. You profess to believe that of one blood God made all nations of men to dwell on the face of all the earth, and hath commanded all men everywhere to love one another. Yet you notoriously hate, and glory in your hatred, all men whose whose skins are not colored like your own. You declare before the world and are understood by the world to declare that you hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, you hold securely In a bondage which, according to your own Thomas Jefferson, is worse than ages of that which your fathers rose in rebellion to oppose, a seventh part of the inhabitants of your country. Fellow citizens, I will not enlarge further on your national inconsistencies. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense and your Christianity as a lie. It destroys your moral power abroad. It corrupts your politicians at home. It saps the foundation of religion. It makes your name a hissing and a byword to a mocking earth. It is the antagonistic force in your government government, the only thing that seriously disturbs and endangers your union. It fetters your progress it is the enemy of improvement, the deadly foe of education. It fosters pride. It breathes insolence. It promotes vice. It shelters crime. It is a curse to the earth that supports it, and yet you cling to it, as if it were the sheet anchor of all of your hopes. Oh, be warned, be warned. A horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is nursing at the tender breast of your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear away and fling from you the hideous monster, and let the weight of twenty millions crush and destroy it forever. But it is answered in reply to all this that precisely what I have now denounced is, in fact, guaranteed and sanctioned by the Constitution of the United States, that the right to hold and to hunt slaves is a part of that Constitution framed by the illustrious fathers of this republic. Then I dare to affirm, notwithstanding all I have said before, your fathers stooped, basely stooped, to palter with us in a double sense, and keep the word of a promise to the ear, but break it to the heart. And instead of being the honest men I have before declared them to be, they were the veriest impostors that ever practiced on mankind. This is the inevitable conclusion, and from it there is no escape. But I differ from those who charge this baseness on the frame of the Constitution of the United States. It is a slander upon their memory, at least so I believe. There is not time now to argue the constitutional question at length, nor have I the ability to discuss it as it ought to be discussed. The subject has been handled with masterly power by Lysander Spooner, Esquire, by William Goodell, by Samuel E. Sewell, Esquire, and last though not least by Garrett Smith Esquire. These gentlemen have, as I think, fully and clearly vindicated the Constitution from any design to support slavery for an hour. Fellow citizens, there is no matter in respect to which the people of the North have allowed themselves to be so ruinously imposed upon as that of the pro-slavery character of the Constitution. In that instrument, I hold there is neither warrant license nor sanction of the hateful thing. But, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble. Consider its purpose. Is slavery among them? Is it at the gateway? Or is it in the temple? It is neither. While I do not intend to argue this question on the present occasion, let me ask, if it be not somewhat singular, that if the Constitution were intended to be, by its framers and adopters, a slave-holding instrument, why neither slavery, slave-holding, nor slave can be anywhere found in it? What would be the thought of an instrument drawn up, legally drawn up, for the purpose of entitling the city of Rochester to a tract of land in which no mention of land was made? Now, there are certain rules of interpretation for the proper understanding of all legal instruments, these rules are well established. They are plain, common-sense rules, such as you and I and all of us can understand and apply, without having passed years in the study of law. I scout the idea that the question of the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of slavery is not a question for the people. I hold that every American citizen has a right to form an opinion of the Constitution and to propagate that opinion and to use all honorable means to make his opinion the prevailing one. Without this right, the liberty of an American citizen would be as insecure as that of a Frenchman. Ex-Vice President Dallas tells us that the Constitution is an object to which no American mind can be too attentive and no American heart too devoted. He further says the Constitution, in its words, is plain and intelligible and is meant for the homebred, unsophisticated understandings of our fellow citizens. Senator Berrien tells us that the Constitution is the fundamental law, that which controls all others, the charter of our liberties, which every citizen has a personal interest in understanding thoroughly. The testimony of Senator Breeze, Louis Cass, and many others that might be named, who are everywhere esteemed as sound lawyers, so regard the Constitution, I take it, therefore, that it is not presumption in a private citizen to form an opinion of that instrument. Now, take the Constitution according to its plain reading, and I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. I have detained my audience entirely too long already. At some future period, I will gladly avail myself of an opportunity to give this subject a full and fair discussion. Allow me to say, in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery the arm of the lord is not shortened and the doom of slavery is certain i therefore leave off where i began with hope while drawing encouragement from the declaration of independence the great principles it contains and the genius of american institutions my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age nations do not now stand in the same relation to each other that they did ages ago "'No nation can now shut itself up from the surrounding world "'and trot around in the same old path of its fathers without interference. "'The time was when such could be done. "'Long-established customs of hurtful character "'could formerly fence themselves in "'and do their evil work with social impunity. "'Knowledge was then confined and enjoyed by the privileged few, "'and the multitude walked on in mental darkness.' But a change has now come over the affairs of mankind. Walled cities and empires have become unfashionable. The arm of commerce has borne away the gates of the strong city. Intelligence is penetrating the darkness, the darkest corners of the globe. It makes its pathway over and under the sea, as well as on the earth. Wind, steam, and lightning are its chartered agents." Oceans no longer divide, but link nations together. From Boston to London is now a holiday excursion. Space is comparatively annihilated. Thoughts expressed on one side of the Atlantic are distinctly heard on the other. The far-off and almost fabulous Pacific rolls in grandeur at our feet. The celestial empire, the mystery of ages, is being solved. The fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. No abuse, no outrage, whether in taste, sport, or avarice, can now hide itself from the all-pervading light. The iron shoe and crippled foot of China must be seen in contrast with nature. Africa must rise and put on her yet unwoven garment. Ethiopia shall stretch out her hand unto God. In the fervent aspirations of William Lloyd Garrison, I say, and let every heart join in saying it. God speed the year of Jubilee, the wide world o'er, when from the galing from their galing chain set free, the oppressed shall vilely bend the knee, and wear the yoke of tyranny, like brutes no more. That year will come. And freedom's reign To man his plundered fights again restore God speed the day When human blood shall cease to flow In every clime Be understood The claims of human brotherhood And each return for evil Good, not blow for blow That day will come all feuds to end And change into a faithful friend Each foe God speed the hour, the glorious hour When none on earth shall exercise A lordly power nor in a tyrant's presence cower, but all to manhood's stature tower by equal birth. That hour will come to each, to all, and from his prison house the thrall go forth. Until that year, that day, hour arrive, with head and heart and hand I'll strive to break the rod and rend the give, the spoiler of his prey deprive. To break the rod and rend the guive, the spoiler of his prey deprived. So witness heaven, and never from my chosen post, whether whatever the peril or the coast be driven. Much respect to Frederick Douglass.